It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Tonight, we are bringing you a fantastic historical story. This will follow an Ohioan out of Maumee, Ohio, which happens to be in Lucas County. This will be our 15th story with Lucas County. How did I find out how many episodes we have done with ties to Lucas County? Easy. I went over to OhioMysteries.com and clicked on the By County link, which was on top, and it took me to our episode list, By County. Be sure to head on over to our webpage and look around to find more fantastic information on your favorite episodes. And now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time to dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Acker Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. It's hard to believe the U.S. Army was still fighting Indians in 1890. I mean, the light bulb and the first gas-powered car had already been invented. The original 13 colonies had grown into 44 states. It was the decade Tchaikovsky performed at New York's Carnegie Hall. 25 million people visited the Chicago World's Fair, and the first U.S. Golf Open was held. But that gilded age was stained with blood when the Army killed more than 250 men, women, and children of the Lakota Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, most of them unarmed, many of them fleeing for their lives. What set off the Wounded Knee Massacre? It has been debated, but how can you boil down cold-blooded carnage to a single word or action or person? Still, history has put much of the blame on the shoulders of one man, the commander of the cavalry that day, Ohio-born and bred Colonel James Forsyth. James William Forsyth was born in Maumee, Ohio, on August 8, 1834, to James Forsyth and Charlotte Jackson. Maumee is in Lucas County, about 10 miles from Toledo. 
He attended the local schools and graduated, after which he was accepted to the United States Military Academy at West Point. I couldn't find a biography of Forsyth. Most historical books that mention him, and a great many of them do, quickly jump from his birth to his military career. So I can only paint a general picture of the era of his childhood. When he was born, America was moving full speed into the West, and that meant having to continually push Native tribes further out. For part of Forsyth's childhood, the last of Ohio's Indians lived just 60 miles away, the Wyandots of Upper Sandusky. He was nine when a treaty moved the Wyandots out of Ohio to Oklahoma in 1843. Forsyth would have grown up unconcerned about Indian unrest. Indeed, after he graduated West Point in 1856 and was commissioned a second lieutenant, the country was marching toward an entirely different kind of conflict, the American Civil War. At the dawn of the war, Forsyth, who had been spending his time serving in the Washington Territory, returned to Ohio to become an assistant instructor of Union recruits in Mansfield. Then he briefly commanded a brigade in the Army of the Ohio before being assigned to the staff of Major General George McClellan. During the war, he held many more positions, finally ending up on the staff of Major General Philip Sheridan. After the North and the South stopped fighting each other, Forsyth began a family. In 1867, he married Elizabeth Dennison. She was the daughter of Ohio Governor William Dennison, and they would go on to have four children. Forsyth returned to where his military career started, the American West, where the U.S. Army still had their hands full skirmishing with Indian tribes and overseeing various reservations. He took part in campaigns against the Comanche, Cheyenne, Arapaho. He commanded the 1st U.S. Cavalry in the Bannock War against Bannock and Paiute warriors in Idaho. By 1885, he was in command of a Montana fort watching over the Crow and the Cree. In 1890, at the age of 56, and a widower, his wife having died two years earlier, Forsyth was a colonel in charge of the U.S. Army's 7th Cavalry, and it was in that capacity that he was called on to deal with the problem simmering in the Dakotas. A little context is important here. The Dakotas are part of the Great Plains, a broad expanse of flatland covered in prairie and grass and a treasured resource for the Indians who once hunted bison there. As America expanded west, part of this land was set aside as Indian reservations. But the native people complained that the government had refused to keep out white men, gold miners, and bison hunters who kept taking their resources. 
Those on the reservation also often had to depend on the government to supplement their food, since they were, for the most part, confined to the reservation and limited to only what the land could produce. But when a census was taken for the purposes of determining food rations, many angry Indians refused to show up and be counted. So the overall food rations were dramatically reduced. By 1890, the residents of the reservations were hungry, angry, and in despair. The government had been trying to force more of the Indians to become farmers, but the timing was bad. The Dakotas were in the midst of a drought. Nothing was growing. A final slap in the face, South Dakota was made a state the year before, giving the white settlers even more power in the region. These conditions fueled a Paiute prophet named Wovoka, who founded a new religious movement called the Ghost Dance. The mystic told followers he'd had a vision that the white invaders would disappear from native lands, ancestors would lead them to good hunting grounds, and the buffalo would return in abundance. All they needed to do was practice the ghost dance, which would bring back the spirits of the dead to aid them. He demonstrated the new dance, which involved warriors performing slow, solemn movements, shuffling in a circle to a single drumbeat. Ambassadors from the tribes throughout the Dakotas learned the dance and returned to teach it in their reservations. Soon, most warriors were doing it, frequently. Some military officials thought it was all a harmless fad, not a sign of impending violence. But by November of 1890, white residents living near the reservations were scared after seeing a great many tribesmen performing the ghost dance. To them, the act was a prelude to war. Some newspapers even whipped people into further frenzy, like this headline in the Chicago Daily Tribune. In a state of terror, Indians dancing with guns, fighting expected at any moment. Smaller local papers in the midst of it all, like the South Dakota Weekly Record, tried to counter that attitude, saying there was no danger of an Indian outbreak. Everything was peaceful, orderly, well-behaved. But in December, after more ghost dancing was seen, reports from the Indian Bureau were sent to U.S. military officials. Indians are wild and crazy. We need protection, and we need it now. To try and quell what some people were referring to as the Messiah craze, officials decided to take some of the local chiefs into custody. Sitting Bull, one of the most famous Indian leaders of the 19th century, was on their list. Sitting Bull was a spiritual chief of the Sioux, born and raised in South Dakota and a national celebrity. He'd traveled the country with the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. We did an episode once on Annie Oakley, that girl from Dark County, Ohio, who became one of the country's best sharpshooters and part of the Buffalo Bill Brigade. 
She was so admired by Sitting Bull that he ceremonially adopted her as his daughter. But the military had always seen Sitting Bull and his popularity among Indians as a potential threat. And now he was a ghost dance convert. On December the 15th, James McLaughlin, the head of the Indian Affairs Field Office for the Standing Rock Reservation, sent 40 Native American police to arrest Sitting Bull at the small cabin where he lived along the Grand River. The military had hoped to send Buffalo Bill in first to talk to his friend Sitting Bull in the hopes of avoiding any violence. But the Indian agent McLaughlin overrode the military request. The police roused the 59-year-old Sitting Bull from his bed at 6 a.m., hoping to spirit him away before his neighbors saw what was happening. And at first, Sitting Bull agreed to go peacefully. But the Lakota villagers awoke, alarmed. They rushed to his side, urging him to resist. Sitting Bull's son, Crowfoot, chastised his father for being meek. Not wanting to disappoint his son, Sitting Bull changed his mind and refused to comply. Tensions rose. A Lakota named Catch the Bear shouldered a rifle and shot one of the officers, who in turn spun around with his revolver in hand and shot Sitting Bull in the chest. Another police officer took aim and shot Sitting Bull in the head. Sitting Bull's son, Crowfoot, was also killed, along with 12 other villagers and two police officers. Now, fearing reprisals from the white leaders, many of the Lakota from Sitting Bull's tribe fled to the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation in South Dakota. There, they joined the tribe of Sitting Bull's brother, Spotted Elk, an old chief who was sick, some say even dying. On December the 23rd, Spotted Elk, many histories call him Bigfoot, but we'll stick with Spotted Elk, took the refugees and his own band north, intending to seek shelter with another chief, Red Cloud. By now, they numbered 350, about 120 men, and 230 women and children. On the way, Spotted Elk reportedly changed his mind and decided for everyone's safety to head for the Indian Affairs Office at Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, He was going to turn them all in. But elsewhere, other plans were in the works. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Here's where our Colonel James Forsyth enters the story. Forsyth, the commander of the 7th Cavalry Regiment, received a missive on December the 28th from his superior, General Nelson Miles, who told Forsyth to disarm the Indians, prevent their escape, and fight them if they resisted. So, Forsyth immediately sent a detachment to meet up with Spotted Elk's traveling tribe and stop them from merging with Red Cloud. These soldiers, led by Major Samuel Whitside, found Spotted Elk near Porcupine Butte. But a scout and interpreter who was half Lakota himself advised Whitside not to disarm them, that they would likely take it poorly and react with violence. So Whitside didn't. Instead, he sent word to Forsyth to bring the rest of the regiment as quickly as he could. Then he gave the Indians a choice— fight or surrender. They agreed to the latter, and Whitside marched them five miles west to Wounded Knee Creek, where they made camp for the night. At 8 p.m., Colonel Forsyth arrived with the rest of the 7th Cavalry, bringing the number of U.S. troops at Wounded Knee to 500. They surrounded the encampment and set up four rapid-fire Hotchkiss mountain guns. That evening, the men of the 7th Cavalry got their hands on some whiskey, imbibed heavily, and taunted the Indians by turning their Hotchkiss guns on the teepees. Witnesses later said they even overheard some soldiers dreaming of revenge for their predecessors. You see, the 7th Cavalry used to be under the command of General George Custer, another Ohioan, by the way, who was defeated in the Battle of Bighorn 14 years earlier. In that battle, commonly called Custer's Last Stand, 250 soldiers were killed. 19 of the survivors of that battle were now at Wounded Knee. After dawn, the soldiers woke up, hung over. Many of the Indians, fearing what the soldiers might do in their inebriated condition, never slept at all. Forsyth ordered the Indians to turn in their guns. It called for a train to take them to a final destination and wanted all the weapons before boarding. Hesitant at first, some began stacking their arms in the center of the camp. Forsyth was not impressed with what had been turned in. He told his soldiers to go and collect them individually. As for what happened next, there's a different version for just about everyone who was there. But many say a medicine man named Yellowbird began performing the ghost dance 
and telling the Lakota around him that the ghost shirts that they wore when performing the dance would protect them from bullets. To some of the soldiers, that sounded like a threat. Others recalled that the soldiers approached a warrior named Black Coyote and tried to take his rifle. He was reluctant. It was a new Winchester, and he'd paid dearly for it. Also, Black Coyote was deaf. A friend of his tried to tell the soldiers he didn't fully understand what was happening, to give them a chance to explain. But two soldiers lost patience, grabbed Black Coyote from behind, and in the struggle, the rifle discharged. That sound may as well have set off an avalanche. It was never determined who fired the first shot. By some accounts, Forsyth gave the order to fire. But what isn't in dispute is that once it started, the soldiers began shooting the Indians indiscriminately, and there was no reining them in. Most of the Lakota had already been stripped of their guns. They were helpless to do anything. Some did reach the pile of confiscated guns, grabbed what they could, and opened fire in return. The U.S. soldiers also turned their Hotchkiss guns on the gathering, raining shells at the rate of 200 rounds a minute. Some witnesses allege the first volley was trained directly at the women and children. Those not immediately cut down turned and ran, scattering over the prairie. Soldiers raced on horseback to hunt them down, killing them as they fled. The first shot went off at 9.15 a.m. When the smoke cleared 20 minutes later, more than 250 Lakota lay dead, including mothers who were cradling their babies and 26 children under the age of 13. Up to another 50 died later of their wounds. Among the dead was Chief Spotted Elk. One account said as he lay dying, his daughter ran to him and fell to her knees, crying. A soldier grabbed a revolver from a comrade and shot her execution style. The U.S. Army suffered 25 fatalities at the scene and lost another six to their injuries later. But the military admitted many of them had been killed by friendly fire, specifically from those Hotchkiss guns that were scattering shot all over the field. Edward Godfrey, the captain of the 7th Cavalry's Company D, later shared what he had seen. He wrote, I know the men did not aim deliberately. They were greatly excited. I don't believe they saw what was in their sights. They fired rapidly, but it seemed to me only a few seconds till there was not a living thing before us. Warriors, squaws, children, ponies, and dogs went down before that unaimed fire. A three-day blizzard followed the massacre, preventing officials from surveying the bloody scene. When they did return, they found 300 snow-shrouded forms scattered around the prairie. General Nelson Miles, the guy who had ordered Forsyth to take care of the matter in no uncertain terms, discovered to his horror the children 
and women with babies in their arms had been chased as far as two miles before being cut down in the back. Two days later, General Miles wrote to his wife, describing Wounded Knee as, quote, the most abominable criminal military blunder and a horrible massacre of women and children. Even the man who had delivered the booze to Whitside's men the night before the massacre felt horrible. His name was Swigert, and he expressed remorse for his indirect role, saying, It was too bad those drunken soldiers were allowed to handle a delicate situation. I know they were all drunk. I am sorry because I feel partly responsible in hauling whiskey in with the supplies. If it wasn't for this liquor, I don't believe the massacre of the natives by the white soldiers would have occurred. The military hired civilians to bury the dead. Numerous photographs of the scene were taken. They show dozens of Lakota bodies frozen in grotesque positions as they were thrown into a mass grave on a hillside. It was also reported that two infants had been found alive, each of them wrapped in their dead mother's shawls. General Miles proceeded to try and destroy Colonel Forsyth's career. He relieved him of command and charged him with negligence. An army court of inquiry was convened to investigate, but they exonerated Forsyth. The court was really only critical of the fact that Forsyth had failed to keep his men on one side of the conflict to reduce the deaths by friendly fire. Overall, the government considered the soldiers heroes. Twenty of them were awarded the Medal of Honor, and the U.S. Secretary of War reinstated Forsyth to command of the 7th Cavalry. There were a great many in the general public who thought the soldiers at Wounded Knee had done them a favor by eradicating a dangerous cult. Even L. Frank Baum, who would go on to write the children's classic, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, penned a chilling editorial as a young newspaper editor at the Aberdeen Saturday Pioneer. That editorial, published a week after the massacre, called for the total extermination of all Indians. He wrote, Having wronged them for centuries, we had better, in order to protect our civilization, follow it up by one more wrong and wipe these untamed and untamable creatures from the face of the earth. In this lies future safety for our settlers and the soldiers who are under incompetent commands. Four years after Wounded Knee, Forsyth was promoted to Brigadier General. By the time he retired in 1897, he was a Major General. Forsyth returned to Ohio after retiring. He died on October 24, 1906, in Columbus, Ohio, and was buried in Green Lawn Cemetery. Years later, the town of Forsyth, Montana, would be named for him, as was Camp Forsyth at Fort Riley in Kansas. But Forsyth's boss that day, General Miles, he continued to speak ill of him, saying the massacre was not some accidental tragedy caused by bloodlust, but a deliberate effort to destroy the Indians. 
After Miles retired in 1903, he spent his final years trying to win compensation payments for the massacre survivors. Time, not surprisingly, has changed how people feel about the Battle of Wounded Knee. In 1990, on the centennial of the incident, both houses of the U.S. Congress passed a resolution expressing deep regret for the massacre. In February of 2021, the South Dakota Senate unanimously requested Congress investigate those 20 medals of honor that were awarded to members of the 7th Cavalry. A month later, three members of Congress introduced a bill to rescind those medals, but I couldn't find any story about how that bill was resolved, only references to the fact that it had been attempted at least once before and failed. There would be a couple more skirmishes between the Army and the Indians, but the tragedy at Wounded Knee is often called the last battle. Without dispute, it symbolized the death of a dream that Native Americans had held on to that they might one day retake their land and control their destiny. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.